everyone and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the show dedicated to covering horror movie franchises one movie in one episode at a time i'm your host mike snoonian and this week we are going back in time and heading into prequel territory we're going to take a look at the 2018 action horror flick the first purge written once again by series creator james demonico but this time he is yielding the director's chair to jared mcmurray and as always, I'm not alone, and for this first purge, we've assembled quite an absolute murder's row of folks to hunker down with and ride the night out with. Uh, up first, he is one half of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast. Welcome back, Devon Taylor, to the show once again. Hello, hello. Happy to be back. I know it's been a minute. I want to get into more of the Phantasm movies, but, you know, time and schedule and stuff. But I'm back. It's, I'm ready to yeah, murder shit. Yeah, we've been kind of like going at a pretty quick pace lately. We've, we've kind of put the pedal to the metal a bit. Like we're just our second recording this week for a little behind the scenes, but everyone's been good. So uh, it's always a pleasure having you on, though. Happy to be back. Absolutely. Especially when you bring your dog on to the camera, too, because he's super adorable. And I just want to. He'll, he'll come around for morale later and you, you guys Excellent. will hear him in the background. Excellent. Uh, you have heard her on the Losers Club. You've read her on Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, and many more places. It's Rachel Reeves. Rachel, how are we? Hey, I'm good. Excited to be here and ready to fuck shit up. <laughs> Ab- absolutely good. We'll get into that. So back again after defending her home turf of Washington, D.C. on our Purge Election Year episode. She is the host of the Bodies of Horror podcast. It's Nicole Goble. Nicole, how are we? Doing well. Thanks so much. Back again. Love having you back on. And this week we have another guest joining us. Um, getting back into hopefully having uh, guests from other shows on as well, because I love bringing in some other voices. And it's a first timer for us. He is one of the co-hosts for the Action for Everyone Action Movie Podcast. Mike Scott, welcome aboard. Glad to be here. Excited to talk about this movie. My purge mask is just out of reach, unfortunately. But, uh, but... <laughs> That's all right. You have quite a collection behind you there. Thank you. Um, so if at any point you want to go just grab something and put it on, like that's okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. That. Fair enough. Okay. So before we kind of dive into the details of the movie, why don't we kind of go around the horn for a minute maybe give our initial thoughts on this movie and for our new guests, maybe the series as a whole, but also since we've been asking this on our other episodes for our uh, first timers on this series, what you would do on purge night. Like if you were to commit a crime, what crime that would be. And Mike, as our guests, why don't you go ahead and lead things for us here? Um, so I'm a, I'm a diehard fan of this series. I, I love all five movies in the series. Um, and this one I saw, this is the first one I actually saw in the theater because the others I had kind of waited until home video. Um, and I've seen it, you know, a half a dozen times since. Uh, I, I absolutely love 
everything about this movie. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, and I'll talk about it a little more later, but I think that uh, DeMonico stepping away from directing is kind of the best thing for the franchise. Um which, you know, I'll talk a little bit more. We can talk a little bit more about later, but I just rewatched this again last night. And every time I watch it, I think I like it a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, as far as, uh, as far as what purge crime I would commit, man, I don't know. Uh, I'd probably, you know, something taking down some fat cats or something. I'd be going to the fancy part of town. That's for sure. Love it. That's great. How about yourself, Devon? Yeah, so um, this had, uh, besides the first film, these have all been, uh, I did a little mini marathon this week, and these have all been first-time watches. Uh, They've been movies I've always been interested in. I tweeted the other day that I think that this is the best, like, elevator pitch concept of the past 25 years, like, as far as just, like, hey, one night, 12 hours of crime. It's, like, putting that as simple as possible, and then, like, seeing the uh, endless possibilities, and... And so far, the franchise has done a pretty solid job at, like, getting into each little area, uh, doing uh, the the format has been cool with the different sequels, and then we got the prequel, and the way that the uh, timeline is. So I like that the uh, it's kind of really covered a lot of ground. And um, But as far as my purge crime, one thing that's funny is, like, yeah, they kind of focus a lot on the violence in these movies, and, like... And not that I'm, you know, couldn't hold my own out there, but I'm trying to get money. Like, I don't know why everybody's so concerned with, like, killing all the time. Like, I am trying to get money for the next 12 hours. So it's like, that's where I'm putting all my time and effort into. Like, if I got to, you know, beat some people up on the way, I'm sure I will. But, like, like, give me the money. I agree. I think maybe a movie about... 12 hours of wire fraud would be less interesting from a, um, but it would probably be a lot more realistic. Um, Devon, quick question, watching them back to back, like doing a marathon in a week, is there anything that kind of jumps out to you as you go from one to another? Again, I, I like that. It's like, okay, we got some sequels. One, we get a you know big time jump. Then we get the prequel. Um, I think that they're kind of doing it an interesting way. My only note is I wonder if maybe this one should have came before election year, but I get why they put election year out when they did because it was 2016. They were kind of you know trying to get on the train with it, but yeah. that's my only thing is I wonder if um, if election year would play a little bit better if it came after this one, but I'm not sure. Mm. But it's also kind of cool that the, the fourth movie in the franchises, you know, kind of seems to be a fan favorite amongst a lot of people, so... You know what? I'm going to make a quick mental note there because you mentioned the fourth movie and I actually want to bring that up, like the kind of the idea of like the fourth movie in the series. Um, I also want to say the Purge midterm election has probably less of a ring to it (laughs) if you did this in 2018, but it could be done. Uh, Rachel, how about yourself? So this was a first time watch for me, which was awesome. I fell off after election year. Um, which was fine. It was fine. It felt, I think in my Letterboxd review, I said it, it to me, it felt kind of like Gremlins 2-ish, where it's just like any idea somebody had, they're like, all right, that's in the movie, that's in the movie, that's in the movie. And just like, you know, Grillo is gizmo coming back again. And it just was like, 
kind of all over the place and just like heightened to sort of like an absurd level I think and I was just like okay all right like I just yeah I don't know it was all right but so coming to this one it really surprised me and I just thought it felt like so much more grounded and like I appreciated that and just the way a lot of these ideas are presented and discussed, I was like, all right, I'm back in, back on the purge train. So excited to continue this journey. I don't make many guarantees, but I will guarantee that this is the only podcast ever that has compared grizzled action star Frank Grillo to like cute little gizmo from gremlins that has not been done shout out frank gizmo else. frank gizmo oh, yeah God. i mean he is right no, like he's just that. like running around the town just like you know gizmo's just like all over the building and turns into rambo and like that's what yep. grillo does again so like I... he doesn't eat anything after midnight either in either of the purge movies so yeah see mm. yeah hmm. i see the connection <laughs> yeah nicole is as the as the person who said in our last show that like this is your favorite series of the past 10 or so years, how does this one... Oh, did you give us your crime, Rachel? Oh, no, I didn't give you my crime. I'm not, you know, I'm not a very confrontational person just in general, like in life. So like violence is probably like not a good idea for me because um, I just feel like I would lose. And so, But I guess I like, I guess I'm curious. I think I would steal a car. but like what happens after like if i steal it like am i going to be in trouble like afterwards because it doesn't belong to me or is it just kind of like you can do those crimes and then like you're forgiven because you did it on purge night because i would totally like go down to a dealership and like snag a new like c8 corvette or something and then like the rest of the night you can you can like wipe the vin numbers and like you know sand down the engine block or whatever and just like no trace of it (laughs) and just like so i might yeah that would be Excellent. fun. <laughs> Pick yourself up a new, sweet new ride. Yeah. Excellent. And Nicole, is the person who called this your favorite series of the past 10 years on our election year episode, how does this one hold up or fit in for you? I really like it. I think this is the one that really ties together um, the other films and really, I think, cements an idea. Um and is, I think, one of the reasons that a lot of people like it is that it really does allow you to kind of complete a sense of world building with the other films. So I really enjoy it. Um, I saw it in theaters, as I've seen all of them uh, in theaters. And yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting and and fun one to talk about. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. Like this is the first one I caught in theaters since the original. And I won't lie. Like it was the poster that drew me in. It was the red mega hat with the first purge and the huge July 4th block letter marketing. And like you see that and you immediately know everything you want to know about the movie, like who the villains are going to be, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to look like and how they're going to be represented. So it was the first movie since the original that I was actually pretty excited to go see. And I'll say that like watching all of these movies back to back, I think this one is actually kind of head and shoulders above the rest of them. 
it gives me like just enough depth of character where I feel like I really know these people. Um, and what stands out watching this is like the vibe of the community in this one feels a lot like the vibe of the community that I work in. Like I work in a inner city with school children all day, every day. And a lot of like that community feel and that extended family feel kind of really shines through here. Um, the action sequences pop. Like there's some real tension and then there's just some of the ways that McMurray frames some of the action as well. Like it's poster art perfect. Like it just looks gorgeous and it feels like a much bigger movie than the other three movies felt like, which all to a certain extent feel very contained. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is for like budgetary reasons, but this one is not that much higher in budget than the previous two movies. And you get what feels much bigger. Um, I haven't rewatched the forever purge for the show yet, but from what I remember about that movie, I don't think that it's going to leap ahead of this one in terms of my rankings. Yeah. I mean, this one, like it, this one, it kind of loses like the shininess of, Mm -hmm. of the, the previous entries a little bit. And it kind of just feels a little bit more, a little more grounded, a little more lived in and, I think out of like any of them in the series, I was most interested to like see this prequel take to, you know, the, how it all started and like yeah. kind of the way that it would unfold. And so like Nicole said, like, this is kind of like the the missing building block of the, the world mm-hmm. building um, that you like kind of get into. And, and it, it, and for me, it like, uh, it, it has like the, the video game quality of uh, like video game energy of anarchy but we still get a little bit more uh, character stuff in this one compared to the previous films, I'd say, aside from the first one. Uh, so it's like it, it kind of has the, the best mix of like kind of the, uh, the, the different styles that these movies have versus it's like, you know, sometimes they're more people based and then sometimes it's more, you know, set piece based. So it's like this one kind of mm-hmm. has like the, the nice little mix to it. Yeah. yeah. I found this one to be like the most chilling, honestly, just because I think a lot of the, you know, the set pieces and the characters like coming together and like what that was discussing. Like I found that this one actually to be like the most scary, but like for different reasons, just because it did feel less fantastical than a lot of the mm-hmm. others. And also this cast is really hot, by the way. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> like, yes. There's so many beautiful people in this movie. <laughs> I would say that that is a through line throughout all the Purge movies. And I'm currently watching the television show so we can record an episode on that in the future. And it's like one thing about like if you were to tell me that like the picture of this movie is the purge gets rid of ugly people for 12 hours. <laughs> I would believe you because everybody in these movies I, and I would get very worried right away. I would start to sweat a little bit and be like, oh, <laughs> I got to go. I got to get myself a really good security system Um, because like you're right. It is a cast full of like gorgeous people. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to go ahead. What are you going to say? No, go ahead. It's not important. Okay. (laughs) Um, If you're going to tell me that I'm gorgeous, it is very important. I need that. That is true. That is very important. I got to remind you every day. 
Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the background of these movies here just a little bit and then kind of go into our movie discussion. But suffice to say, after the success of the Purge election year, a fourth movie is very quickly greenlit. And it's another co-production between Blumhouse, Platinum Dunes and Michael Bay and Universal Studios. Um, DeMonico talked a little bit about this one being one where he gets one for him. Uh, he gets to do what he wants for a movie after the first three movies make nearly $400 million and they've cost less than $22 million to make. So he breaks out the previous script that he had written, um, which was going to focus on the first purge. And he also was able to say, and I want to set it in New York city. He is someone that grew up in, I forget which borough, but he grew up in New York. He talked uh, when he was making the first movie about how his background growing up in New York city and like not being a violent person, but being comfortable around violence influenced his writing on these movies. So he was really excited to do that. But he also realized pretty early on, realizing where the movie is set the fact that it was going to be in a largely black cast and this wasn't the movie that he should direct that he was more than happy to like take a step back and just do the writing and hire an african-american director that would be able to bring their own experience to the movie and and be able to work with this cast in this story so he hired uh, Gerard McMurray, who had just come off like a Sundance uh, darling, uh, Burning Sands, which explores hazing on college campuses. And McMurray would go on and make some further changes to the script just to make it like a tr what he calls a true community compromise of people of color. And I found this in an old interview uh, where he's uh, from Slash Film, where he says about the script, I added a lot. More of the characters became people of color. The perspective of what I think is scary for a black man, the KKK, everything you see happen in this film, the masks, every part of it. I came in and really told James how I wanted to make my vision and told it from a black perspective. Make it young, contemporary, and fresh. I can still feel fun. Oh, sorry. It can still feel fun and talk about what's now from my perspective from the black and brown community that's what i brought to it and i guess i'll, I'll pose the question is like i mean i feel like this is a pretty important story to tell from a different perspective like from someone who's not james DeMonico. and like mike you touched on that a little bit uh when you were talking about the movie but do we all agree like yes this is the perfect project for someone to tell from who is a person of a perspective of someone who is a person of color I yeah. think so. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I mean, when you kind of look at, like, uh, the, the main characters uh, amongst most of the films, like, even before this, like, it's a pretty well-diverse cast because, I mean, you know, you are kind of trying to depict America in a way, and, like, you know, America is obviously very diverse, but there is something different. Uh, you definitely do feel the change that this is, you know, directed by a black man that, you know, not only having the cast and all the people represented, but you do kind of just feel that. A little bit more it it feels a uh, this movie feels the most personal out of like any of the out of any mm -hmm. of the films in the series like um I'm, I'm not sure what it is about it. it is just kind of the the authenticity that he is able to bring uh, make it you know uh, it does feel like you know young and contemporary mm -hmm. in this one you do just like kind of feel that energy from it 
And um, so, so yeah, th this is like the most personal one in the series. It also like they've alluded to like so many times about, or not even alluded to, like they've directly discussed like how the purge has been impacting like these communities and the homeless and the underprivileged and all of that. And so this having it be able to like just actually focus for once and actually center that community, I think is really important and refreshing. And I was just so happy watching this to see that they were finally like just, okay, we're actually going to put this story at the center. Yep. Well, and that, that carries over, <clears throat> not to jump ahead, but that does carry over to the next movie too. So I think this one is is a change in terms of, you know, the biggest problem I have with the original Purge is that it um, really does step away a lot from, you know, the things are there. It's clear that DeMonico still has stuff on his mind, but it really does back away. And, and, and Anarchy gets there a little bit. Election Year backs away in terms of making it just a Frank Grillo action movie, which I love. <laughs> but um, this is the first one that really feels like it embraces the themes that DeMonico has wanted to say overtly throughout the entire series. But yeah. then you've also got it through the eyes of, of McMurray. You've got it through the eyes of a different director, a director of color. Uh, and so I think it's it's a perfect combination of DeMonico's strengths as a writer, but his we avoid what I think are some of his weaknesses. You know, we'll talk a little bit. I'll talk a little bit, obviously, because it's me about the action. Um, you know, the action on this is so far superior to any other any other purge movie um because as much as i like demonico's ability to 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 create action i don't love his ability to shoot it and so here again mm -hmm. we've got a whole different vibe and i think that that goes along with it because we've really got a scene here a group where it, they're not just trying to survive dimitri's group is trying to take the fight back uh and that that i think changes changes the game a little bit here for the movie mm -hmm. too Mike, quick, and you might not have an answer now, so maybe if you don't now, maybe we can come back to it in a little bit. Like, what would be a good example of a an action sequence from either Anarchy or Election Year that had a lot of potential, but maybe didn't live up, like just the way it was shot, didn't quite live up to how good it could have been? Gorilla's last fight, his last knife fight in Election mm -hmm. Year, in election is year? cut to hell. Uh, it, it's really, that was the first one that came to yeah. my mind too. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you can see the choreography there. Grillo is perfectly physically capable of doing the choreography. He's done it in several other movies, uh, you know, when he's motivated, uh, and, uh, and this, uh, <laughs> th this looks like a good fight. I can tell it's a good fight, but I, I don't think DeMonico knew how to shoot action in a way uh, he did the worst thing that a lot of directors do when it comes to action is they try to make the action in the edit. And that's the absolute worst way possible to shoot action. You have to, you have to get the action on, on set, uh, and then do very minimal, uh, well, not minimal, but very pointed and directed editing. Um, and that's what you get here. If you contrast the knife fight at the end of election year to, the shootout in all the smoke when they drop all the smoke bombs and they, they they're saving the three uh, they're, they're, they're worlds apart from one another. Everything in that shootout is clean, clear, even though it's smoky, even though everything's backlit, you never lose the geography of the scene. You never lose where everybody is. Um, it's just, it's just much, a much better and much more impactful action scene because of that. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. And you're right. You said the same, like, I think, 
I had the same idea that last knife fight in the parking garage, it gets chopped a bit to hell. Um, the other thing that jumps to mind is the shotgun wielding deacon at the end just looks oh. a little bit, <laughs> looks a little bit silly. Great potential, um, but it looked a little bit silly. Um, okay. McMurray talked a bit about his own influences as well. Um, he talks about the grounding the movie in real world experiences and discussed how he was shooting this just as the incidents in Charlottesville are occurring uh, and how like horrifying it was to turn on the news and realize what he's filming doesn't look that much different from what you're seeing on CNN at the moment. But he also realized like he has to bring home like a fun movie and he talked about his own love for action movies and exploitation movies in an interview where it was suggested like some of the seventies uh, black exploitation movies. He talked about being a child of the nineties and really loving movies like the new J- like new Jack city uh, and the shaft reboot movie and how those influenced um, his, his vision. It was fine. I was reading the interview and I think the, when he mentioned shaft, the interviewer, had said, like, yeah, but he's a detective. He's like, yeah, but he's a detective that goes out and kicks ass. Uh, you know, he doesn't, like, just go there with, like, a magnifying glass and for <laughs> clues. Um, I'm going to save this bit for later. Um, so while the film takes place in Stanton Island, the location is mostly used for pickup shots. They talk about, like, the baseball stadium is where they probably shot for the longest, and that's only a quick scene and that is, I believe, the scene that like the Yankees use for practice or opponents coming into Yankee Stadium like use uh, for practice on an, on an off day. The bulk of the film is done in Buffalo. Um, the poster hits in January 2018, and it's immediately controversial, like that giant red hat against the white background. Um, I think like both of you, like everyone here has hinted on there's no subtlety to this movie. Like the gloves are off and we're going to take the implied and now make it completely explicit and comes out wide July 4th, 2018. It is the most successful of the franchise to date, pulling in about 137 million worldwide on a budget of 13 million. I'd originally made a note saying it pulled in a little bit less domestically than the others aside from the first movie but the reality is it was kind of like right in line with what the others had made it wasn't a huge drop off between between uh the first second third or fourth movie that's like kind of wild i'm actually surprised maybe i just wasn't paying attention but i didn't realize that these movies were that financially successful Mm -hmm. and i feel like that should probably get talked about more. Like, I don't know. Give credit where credit's due. Yeah, I didn't realize the budget, or I didn't realize, like, the box offices did that well. But, like, again, to be able to, like, hit that milestone in the fourth movie of the franchise just really yeah. kind of says a lot about the mm-hmm. the consistency. And, like, again, you kind of see that consistency when you do have that, you know, creative voice behind it. So I feel like mm-hmm. DeMonico, you know, being able to keep that creative consistency, like, also helped its, uh, its box office performances. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how the fourth movie is often like another height in a franchise. Because I'm looking back at some of the movies we've done. Like Friday the 13th, the final chapter. 
Amazing. is considered by many like the best in the series. <laughs> um, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Masters, my personal favorite aside from the original. Like I actually would put that above Dream Warriors. I think it's like the real crystallization of what my daughter calls Vacation Freddy, where <laughs> he is mostly, uh, he starts to become more jokey, but not too much so. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Uh, Rocky 4, if we move, jump well, genres. Duh. Yeah. Right? Wait, Bride it's, of Chucky is Bride of 4. Chucky, the fourth, Bride of yeah. Chucky is the fourth one. It's like the mm-hmm. fourth movie is like the like second wind of a lot of series. Yeah. Sometimes, I don't know. Fast well, and Furious 4 is pretty terrible. That's, <laughs> it's that's not like till the fifth one. one. It's so boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but is it that par for the course for that series? Shut, shut your I'm mouth, sorry. Michael. Sorry. How dare I'll you, sir? I've not seen that. <laughs> Leave meeting. Goodbye. <laughs> Do not disrespect the family on this podcast, please. Yeah. It's really like you get to the fifth movie, and that's when they start maybe becoming... A little bit off. I don't want to say hot garbage. That's a little bit harsh. But I'm thinking like a new beginning, the dream child, um, revenge of Michael Myers. That's usually even Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The fourth movie is the uh, return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I wouldn't argue that that movie is good, uh, but that movie is so much fun especially coming off of part three, which is a solid slasher, but that's about it. And in this one, you get Renee Zelliger, like telling Leatherface to sit down and shut the fuck up. And Matthew <laughs> McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey doing whatever Matthew McConaughey is going to do. And listeners go back into our archives. That episode and, is so fun. I had such a blast doing that. That episode is on next generation. <laughs> it is the second most popular episode in that whole series. Wow. Yeah, it is that, and the remake was close behind it, but nice. I was stunned with how I think we're here for the McConaissance is what it is. <laughs> so that's really, really what it is. So, all right, let's talk about this movie now. Let's get right to it. And I'm just going to say the first purge takes all of the subtext of the previous three movies, all of the kind of like, it's really about killing the poor, kind of, sort of. And it just lays it like out bare in the movie for 97 minutes, right? I mean, I'm not wrong with that. No, <laughs> you are not wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, yeah, like, I mean, I definitely feel like if, uh, if you like, you like watch election year and you think that they're like kind of, you know, they're obviously playing to stuff like kind of being cheeky and like, you know, but like this one is like, no, he is like pulling straight quotes, you know, you know, from, you know, real life into this. Like he had no, uh, no qualms about being like, no, I'm not going to be coy with you like at all. <laughs> which I love. It also makes explicit that the NFFA is, you know, not on the up and up with all this shit, which we knew. And I mean, the movies had led to that in the end of election year basically says that too. But this is the one that makes explicit that the entire concept of the purge is, is rotten at its foundation uh, and has been manipulated, you know, throughout the whole thing. Um, which again, makes it explicit, been manipulated to kill poor people. I mean, that's really the idea here is, is, you know, and it just puts that front and center in a way that the other movies did not. What I did. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nicole. I think that also this is where we start to see the alternate universe uh, divide. Um, So this takes place technically, I think in 2016 
is when the first experiment mm-hmm. goes because there's technically two um, purge experiments. Um, there's one in 2016 and one in 2017. And then the actual purge starts in 2018. And so I think that um, this film really does put forth a lot of thought to what is happening now, um, thoughts and feelings, and really making you then put those into kind of those what-if scenarios. How would you react in this situation? Um, What would you do? What would you protect? Um, Would you go off the island or would you stay? And putting it in your neighborhood, I think, makes it so much more um, intense. Agree. Nicole, what what was the 2017 experiment? So it's just the second experiment, but it is. So you, I think in the purge 2014, there is that footage. Um, and we, it comes back in, in other films too, kind of the surveillance cam footage of events. And there is, uh, a few shots of ones that are timestamped as 2017. So at the very end of the first purge, I say, well, there is a possibility that we can take this national um, or try to take this national the following year, as soon as next year. And so 2017 is kind of like a national test to say, okay, well, we did it here in Staten Island. Now let's take it on a more national before we actually stamp it as the purge well well the 2017 might also have just been another one because this one actually takes place in 2014 is uh the the time year for this so that so that 20 it's it's 2016 yeah because the nffa doesn't they take power in 2014 yeah i'm looking i'm looking at the 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 synopsis it's alternate 2014 is when they get elected, and then yeah. 2016 they pass the 28th Amendment. Trust mm-hmm. me, I have questions on that as well. Okay. I have okay. some. Okay. I'm see, gonna we're getting, be we're getting a little murky with with the years yeah. here, but now I see it. Okay, right. 2016. I'm the I'm the one in the election year episode that asks, "How does Frank Grillo not age for 17 <laughs> years?" You know. Oh yeah, like, that one's like 2040. Like yeah. Think- you know, yeah, it, but in fairness, Grillo was also born 53 years old. So that's true. how he doesn't age. But I think <laughs> yeah. that, though, to, to what Devon is, is talking about, one of the only issues that I really have with this film, and it's not necessarily an, it's an issue, but I think it's just part of the, I think, the task of the film. I think this is the film with the biggest job to do, which is mm-hmm. to really make The Purge seem like, a tangible thing and navigating the fact that people who are seeing this probably have a substantial amount of quote unquote background on it from seeing the other films. And how do you kind of go backwards in time without making anything super repetitive and boring, provide new information, but also then make it something interesting and tangible. And there's a couple of references in the film specifically that make the timeline super wonky. Um, and it it's one of those things when I watched it uh, 
just earlier today. It's like, uh, um, because it's they don't put a name to it. They don't. Yeah. We'll get there. Oh yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple thoughts on. Is I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, playing off of what Nicole said, how this one has the biggest job, which I think is something that never really properly gets addressed. Is just like why the purge works, and I, I mean, like in terms of like why would you know the United States ever buy into this? And I think what's interesting about how they kind of address that is the fact you know the, the the twist i guess when they you know they start sending in these sort of these mercenaries you know um pretending to be gangs and how they're kind of staging these scenarios because people are not responding how they want them to but if you're outside of that you just see everybody like you just see all this violence and so like you you know you think that's what's happening and if that's what's happening it kind of like would change your perspective as if they had just shown it as it was and it was just a bunch of people partying and robbing stores they'd be like well this is stupid like no (laughs) you know and so I, i do think that that was something that always kind of like yeah it's a movie so of course i'm like you know just you know don't think about it kind of logic but I did think it was interesting that they discussed that because it's like, okay, if you're outside of this, maybe this is why the whole, the rest of the United States like bought into this idea. Um, So I, I, yeah, I liked that. I think you can do both. I think you can critique a movie for some sloppiness, but still enjoy it. It doesn't have to be like, I think sometimes it feels like it's a zero sum game. It's like, well, because there's this glaring issue in terms of the continuity, therefore everything about it is null and void and like it's just you know do better i guess sometimes with the i think it's like bluntness and uh you know sometimes lack of subtlety is is definitely a strength of the franchise but it can also uh be a weakness of it Mm -hmm. um because they do just like kind of spend a lot of time just like saying things but like not actually like kind of showing it because they keep saying like it's so important that like how staten island performs is the best demographic for the representation of this for it to work i just keep thinking i'm like is it though like because like it doesn't really because like uh yeah it doesn't really add into i guess the quote-unquote twist but is it but you know they're we're seeing it outright that's like yeah they're paying you know poor people are manipulating them it's like this isn't a surprise that like that the the intentions behind it because like the the more accurate like depiction of like oh would this work or not is like do it in like suburbia like, yeah, that would be like the I think would be like to give you the best well-rounded to be like, well, see, even if suburban mm-hmm. people can do it then. So it's like that would sell the concept more, but they're not interested in I mean, they are interested in selling the concept, but they're also interested in selling it in their way, you know, yeah. in, uh, you know, controlling the perception of, you know, why they're doing it. It also be, it builds fear, like, about those communities, which is, like, disgust, you know, right? Because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. see what's happening? See, there's everybody here is just, like, tearing each other apart. And so that builds fear in suburbia, which makes, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's just, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot to this, I think, that's, like, a lot of undercurrents here that are, like, really subtly addressed, which is really nice. But also, like, that's what I find most chilling about this whole movie is just those those little things that aren't said. Part of the what you're both saying there and talking about why not do this in suburbia or why this specific, why 
an area specific like Stanton Island, like an urban area. And in the first few movies, you have like characters that are speculating a little bit like, well, maybe it's really about getting rid of the poor people. Maybe it's really about getting rid of some social services. But those are just like characters that are on the fringe or on the outside. And then you get to Senator Rowan, who's on the inside, but she's also a politician that is running a campaign and she has a one. So she's obviously going to, well, she's going to take the opposite tact of if the the party in power has the purge. This is why it's bad. But she is still someone that's in it for herself. In this movie, I pulled up a quote. You have like the NFFA chief of staff saying like words coming out of his mouth. The country is overpopulated, doctor. There's too much crime, too much unemployment, bankrupt governments. And that is the key one. The government is bankrupt that, quote, can't afford to take care of its own citizenry. People don't want us to raise taxes. Our debt has tripled. We can't pay for anything. We inherited all this mess. Something needed to be done. Well, what then? You tell me, because we exhausted every possibility. I need for this to work. I need to sell this on a country-wide scale because this is our last hope. Part of me asks, like, how much did you really try? Because you've been in power <laughs> for two years and mm-hmm. you're already like, all right, plan uh, plan A, kill every poor citizen. Plan B, profit. It's like well, that seems they've to be... been in office for such a short time. It reminds me of the... Um, Simpsons quote um, from an episode where it goes into like Ned Flanders background and he was like this wild kid and he was being raised by Mm -hmm. kind of these yeah and they're like we don't know what to do proving once again that dirty hippies are the worst but But they're like we don't know what to do we tried nothing and we're all out of ideas so I think that that's kind of I, I think these are skilled manipulators and politicians and so they need to be able to twist a narrative and i think in that moment it happens i think a split second later he's still wanting to kind of keep her on board he still thinks that maybe she'll be like yeah you're right and and i understand so I think that he's putting his cards out there for just a bit. But no, I think this also builds on, um, you know, because this is based in the U.S., it's also, I think, framing the first experiment in the way that it has just kind of builds on, you know, institutional racism and how yes. it's very easy to not to plug in something that's so horrific if it's like, yeah, but it's, you know, it's only certain populations that are really impacted. And think of all the good the purge has done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like that's where that's where like the, the fear really does come in for me. Because it's like they, they can sit there and try and tell you that like, yes, we're, we're doing it because of this. We're doing it. Uh, we've tried. We've tried. But like when your answer is to just like instead of to try harder and take less for yourself is like, no, we're just going to yeah. destroy instead. Like right. that's just like, you know, it, it's, you know, so it's like they, they can, you know, it's, it's like they're, uh, what, what's the saying? Uh, don't, don't piss in my face and tell me it's rain. Like that's yeah. literally yep. like them. <laughs> well, and not just we, like just throwing money at it is, you know, they're willing to throw money at it to a certain extent, but not actually like understand 
the the quote unquote like the root of the problem or the root of like what is causing these situations that I mean we see we see this all the time right and it's just like well maybe if you kind of unpack and understand like why these situations are happening and why certain people are in certain situations but they don't want to do that they just want to like they just want the problem to go away <laughs> I'm thinking of a couple specific real world examples right now I'm thinking of like in politics like in 2021 we had the child tax credit which lifted i want to say somewhere north of like four million children out of poverty and it ran for one year and then wasn't renewed because you had senators like joe manchin say i think families are spending that money on drugs Mm. no evidence like no research nothing evidence-based just flat out saying the quiet part out loud like families that are receiving this money are using it on drugs. And the reality is family were using it for things like groceries. They were using it for things like diapers. They were using it for things like fuel. They were putting that money back into the economy. And more recently, we have let the nationwide free school lunch program lapse. And you're going to see a return to lunch debt where kids will be not be denied school lunch if they their parents haven't paid their bill because asking like a third grader to go out and work so he can get his lunch is a bit ridiculous so there's all of the psychological shame that is associated with that uh in 2020 we from 2020 until like early late last year or early this year we were offering free school lunch to every kid in every school in the country. I'm fortunate enough to work in a district where that's been ongoing, free lunch and free breakfast. And it helped kids learn because I will let you know, if you are hungry, you can't learn. If all you can think about is where that next meal is coming from and you're in class, you can't learn. Um, But we've let these really good programs lapse because they cost money. Mm -hmm. But... I could very easily see tens of billions of dollars thrown at a program like this, which would well, get rid of people. Well, yeah, when I like I know like where I live, um, the conversation around like unho- like unhoused people is always mm-hmm. like a pretty big one. And it's, you know, people, do, they they want to throw money at it, but not necessarily solve or look at the causes of why these folks are, you know, temporarily or long term without a house and home and but also like they don't want them like around them you know and so it's just like you know push them to the side and don't really want to help them they just and uh, yeah it's just it's very icky well i'd say for the school lunch thing if you want more on that there's an article in vox uh america's school lunch crisis by anna north it's a great read that kind of goes in the whole history behind school lunch debt and how this program saved folks. It's a weird thing that I'm passionate about, but it's it's out there. Um, that's what actually that's what actually makes these movies kind of quaint. To be honest with you, is the idea that they would actually be this subtly manipulative about creating something like <laughs> The Purge when I think we know now. Saying the quiet part out loud is just how it rolls. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, honestly, I think if this were our real world, they would literally just come out and say, I think we want to kill black people. And there would be a not insignificant 
percentage of our population that would be in favor of that. Uh, oh, sure. So yeah. that's that's actually. No, I, I will say, like, even just the last week, the news that's come out about uh, from, I don't know, Tennessee, Tennessee. <laughs> you know, like and stuff like and then what's going on in Florida. It's just like watching these movies now. It's like I, I understand, you know, they came out a few years ago. It's just. Oh, I'm just so tired. <laughs> Rachel, you had said a few minutes ago how this one feels the most chilling. Yeah. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, I think Because it feels at... believable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's when you so look... scary. Yeah. You look at most dystopian movies and in some cases, like they're pretty fun because like they're so ridiculous and the filmmakers are winking at the audience. Yeah. Like, yes, things are bad, but they're not as bad as like the world that John Carpenter creates in Escape from New York. They're not as bad as like what Schwarzenegger has to go through in The Running Man. Like they're not as bad as what we see in Battle Royale where kids are sent to an island and they're forced to kill one of each other for like televised entertainment. Mm-hmm. But where that discomfort comes from here and Rachel you also mentioned like the opening scene of the first movie with the surveillance footage that is all like scripted and filmed in the first movie here you have protest footage from the real world you have footage from the Occupy movement you have footage from Charlottesville you're basically just combing the archives at CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and you're saying this is the world of the purge and it, it is our world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's like it's crazy that, you know, 10 years ago when this, you know, the the first movie comes out and sells the premise and like, you know, the everyone's talking about the premise and they're like, you know, could we actually get there? You know, like how could that <laughs> actually go there? And then so I think that is kind of like one of the most effective parts of this film is just like the way that again it was such an important thing to be like how did this get here and like when they the way that they set up the experiment like it feels like very real and it like it makes a lot of sense in like that beginning you kind of feel like the heartbreak for a lot of these people when they're at you know doing these interviews and of course like if you're going to go to a you know poor poor community and you're asking people, hey, are you upset? Are you angry? Well, yes, of course they are because they're broke and they don't have food. So it's like, yes, of course that's the answer you're going to get from it. And then, of course, you're going to get participants that are willing you know, to stay, all the people that have their various reasons to staying home because they can you know, still get money for just staying home. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and then if you participate, we'll give you more money. You know? So it's like the, the, the targeting of it you know, does feel so realistic and so scary that um that's what you know makes this so effective as like you know the prequel what would it take for each of you to stay home on a night like this like here everyone is offered five thousand a piece which is probably like a life-changing amount of money or if not a life-changing it is like enough money to give someone some solid footing for a couple months but what i i know for me it would be like it would take a lot more like if you wiped out my student loans, I would consider it. But what would it take for y'all to stay home on a night like this? I mean, honestly, not much. Like I mean, yeah, dude, well, like, it, I, like it's it's it, like like it, like that like, like that amount of money is different. You know, changing to different amount of people. But like mm-hmm. I can literally say in my life right now, like five thousand dollars would like like put me back on track. Like I would be okay. back on track on top of shit and like 
Like I, I can't even remember the last time I had five thousand dollars at the moment. So it's like, with like it is like kind of believable. Like I mean, yeah, I think it would take a little bit more. But like, I mean, if I had the time and preparation, and like they were saying, ten grand to stay home during this, yeah, yeah, I okay. got, I got this. <laughs> but the, like on the flip side, it's like okay, so what if you don't stay? That means you have to leave or like go somewhere. Okay, mm-hmm. well, what if you don't have the money? You don't have a car. You don't have gas. You can't afford to rent an Airbnb up in the mountains. Like, where are you going to go? And how are you going to pay to get there? So it's kind of like, uh, so, I mean, there's got to be so many people that would just be forced to stay because they don't even have another option. So why not take $5,000 anyways? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Plus, yeah, man, it's my home. I'm not going to just leave my home and my cats and all of that sort of stuff. Like, and all like, your cool stuff. Yeah. No, like, <laughs> like, no, I, 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 it would not take, I mean, honestly, I would not leave for no money. Like I, I, I would stay in my home, buy a bunch of, you know, steel reinforced doors and windows and, and hunker down. I'd be like the Sandines in the first one, you know, but I ain't leaving. There's just no way. I think that the sum of money to me is meaningless because there's no assurance that I would even survive to get it and spend it. And I don't know, like going back and watching these films for these records, it's really kind of put me in a, in a different kind of mind frame because it's like, would I live in this world? Would I choose to live in a world where murder Christmas is happening and I I don't know if I could because I could sit there and say well I'm going to go out and I'm going to do good I'm going to be Laney in election year and try to provide some kind of service or I don't know but there's no assurance that I would be around to do it and there would be no assurance around that I would get money if I did stay home. So it just all seems kind of pointless to me. I just don't, I would just be like, do I live through, like, is this worth it? I hear your point about like when you mentioned Laney from election year, I would donate to Laney's Kickstarter. Like, Oh, you want to have a little, like we're going to be EMTs that go out that night. Like that's nice. Here's 10 bucks to your Kickstarter, more power to you. I contributed, I ain't going out there, you know, like I am older, I'm round, I got two bad knees, um, I got kids that can break my ankles doing crossovers if we, you know, shooting hoops in the gym, like I'm an easy target, so I don't know, I said my student loans would get me out the door, um, or get me to stay home, it would, that would probably be like the first level where I would stay home, like other than that, like I am packing a bag throwing the family in the car and and we are because we have that luxury we're not staying home that night yeah I, I like how the series like does explore the you know they do such a good job of like doing uh equal sides on a lot of things and like part of like uh you know i've related to uh homies in election year of like uh the you know just guarding the gas station because it's not only you know uh, so much of the purges you know people think of what they can gain but it's like you know the horror of it is what you can lose from it so i really so, yeah. like that uh, the, the, there's a, still a clear through line through these right. films. Well, that's why you, at the end of this movie, when you get a feel for how much this community has been decimated 
in just one night. That $5,000 a person, pull that all together, it's not going to go anywhere near what it's going to take to rebuild that community. Also, don't you think, like, Canada would have to, I mean, <laughs> they'd probably have to, like, build a wall to keep out all these, like, Americans. Yeah, like, Americans, like, no, we can't, no, don't come here, go away. <laughs> that That is the premise of the Forever Purge, where... Canada and Mexico have basically said Americans aren't wanted. They open their borders for like oh, wait, a few it is? hours. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad they addressed yep. that because I feel like so many people would just like, like you know, Nicole is saying like, I don't want to live in this world. No. Moving to Canada. <laughs> nope. And we've already um, seen yeah, that. Yeah, but I, so, I, I, I want to be more specific. I don't want to live in a world yeah, no, I, yeah, of the I purge because I don't care where I go. If I escape, I'm coming right. back to people that I know care about dead. Um, right. right. What an awkward conversation at the bodega. Like, what did you do last night? I slit some old lady's throat. Oh. Yeah, can I get a coffee? Like, oh. no, you can't yeah. do that. That's not... That's That's not real, and I think... One of the things that I kind of appreciate about, and, and you touched on this in election year conversation about how kind of cartoonish it is. And it's because I think that people have lost that, mm. that kind of ability to, to have that kind of uh, reason in a lot of ways. It's just, this we live in this awful space. Yeah. I think there's something to be said, like there's so much bad news all the time that it just, just becomes like no longer bad news, it just becomes news. Right? Yep. So and I one thing I as we're talking here, how much do you feel like this movie indicts how the media tends to cover the news cycle? Because I, it feels like they're covering this event like we cover like we cover politics now, where it becomes like a horse race, or it becomes nothing more than a sporting event where there's like a, a rooting interests on both sides and a winning team and a losing team, and there's no nuance. And it feels like in this movie, when you watch, when you watch the how it's covered, like the newscasters are talking about oh. The NFFA is targeted like this specific neighborhood and this specific tower in the neighborhood. This apartment building is being crucial to the success. Almost like they're talking about, you know, like how is Bill Belichick and the game plan for Patrick Mahomes in the upcoming like Chiefs Patriots game. Right. And not about, hey, there are hundreds of people that live in this building that are now immediately in danger. How much do you feel there's an indictment on on media coverage in this movie? Oh, I, I think it like it like it's from like a when you go inside like the the camera room like the broadcast room uh, like mm-hmm. it, it's definitely that like because you know they're they're you know checking every camera to you know get the 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 proper events you know as, as quick but then also like catching it quick to be like deciding oh do we put this out or not because does it help us or not you know so mm-hmm. it's like. Uh, every time they go into that broadcast room and they have, you know, they're showing them like, you know, selectively, um, you know, taking each thing and being like, okay, like we need to find this. So we need to find an area where this is happening, you know, so um, it, it very much of uh, uh, controlling the perception, but doing it like in this like super mm-hmm. fast real time. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's, right, um, I think at a certain point, Arlo Sapien says, make that footage disappear. It's making sure that Updale has been killed. So there's that footage, because, of course, they want all of the footage, but it's very manipulated. They're using it, they're stitching it together to... Um, you know, only put bits and pieces out. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and we see this from the jump, they're so excited to get, like, footage of the first, like, mm-hmm. event. But it's so doctored because it's some dude getting into an ATM. That is your quote-unquote first crime. But they've doctored it to only highlight the murder at the end. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is, again, I think that the new founding fathers are maybe not skilled in terms of politics at all. Um, because I think they're super sloppy um, in that regard. But I think that they're, Great. I mean, and. I say just that from a logistical standpoint, Mm -hmm. but I think that they are very good manipulators and they're very good at tapping into a narrative that Mm -hmm. folks want to hear. This is why in election year, we have tapped into this very evangelical Christian ideology um, as well. And in, you know, this film and leading up to it, there are only, you know, that that's not a part of it. It's because they've been able to kind of weaponize that community to their benefit. I feel like as we're sitting here talking about this very thing, like one of the things that hits is because we, we're seeing like a lot more um, legalized like sports betting right now, like in Massachusetts by the time this episode is up, I think like we'll actually be able to use the like, uh, like betting King apps and others to like bet. How much action do you think there would be in the books during an event like the purge? Like what percentage of people will participate? Like you, could you not see like an ESPN segment where it's like ESPN first take, what's the over under on how many people will actually be killed on purge night? Like, it feels like we would get there pretty quick as a country, right? I mean, as a... As Mike, a... I see you smirking over there. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, sounds... absolutely. Well, and the prop bets would be ridiculous. Like, the, the, the level to which they would go, you know, how many people are killed by knives? How many people are blown mm-hmm. up? Um, like, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the juice would be through the roof if, if something <laughs> like this was actually happening. Like, yeah, it, it, this would... Vegas would make enough on purge night betting that they would never have to like, they could close down 364 days out of the mm-hmm. year. Ooh, a purge in, purge in Vegas would be fun. <laughs> oh my God. Why has that not happened? I was about to say, and like, as a, as a sports nerd, I'm definitely uh, would kind of, kind of need to see it because then we also know in like the world of the purge, there's like people that go on to be like legendary purgers, you know, there would be like a whole, whole like mm. thing there like a like a league of purgers oh just think celebrity purgers. free buffet free buffet you're not paying those <laughs> top tier prices for all the shrimp you, need, you just go in and get it yeah 
we get like an Ocean's Eleven meets the Purge crossover with Clooney? I mean, you think he would do it at this point? <laughs> do you think we're there? Um, I want to talk a little bit. I have more stuff on like the whole socio-political, and we'll get into it. But let's shift gears a little bit and talk about because this is a really good action horror movie as well with a lot of emphasis on action and i think like elon knoll in the lead here gives like a performance worthy of any top tier 21st action star um and the only real note i have is like i just want more movies with sex workers moonlighting as assassins like that would be a subgenre of movies that you would be like, take my money, please. I will watch any of these, all of these. I would be at the multiplex every like make this the new like are there too many superhero movies? Make this the more like are there too many sex workers moonlighting as assassin movies? All right. Give me that complaint to have. Um, what are some of our favorite action set pieces in this movie? Because it has a lot of them. Well, Mike already mentioned, like, the smoke fight. Uh, that's pretty fun. It also reminded me of, like, the flower, like, bloodshot fight. Um, although bloodshot came out after this. But that's, yeah, that's super fun. Yeah, I, I, I always enjoy when uh, these movies, like, kind of hit uh, into their, like, video game modes, uh, as I call it. And uh, I felt like, uh, you know, Dimitri, uh, you know, taking the... Uh, when he, at the end, you know, taking the tower on by himself is uh, really fun. That that stair uh, sequence is like just like really fantastic, like really great camera work. It's the total opposite of you know some of the acting scenes. Like there's you know little cuts we get like you know, but it's also um, you there's a visceralness to uh, a lot of like kind of getting a little bit more uh, up close and personal uh, in these, in the action scenes. I feel like um, especially um, in election year, it kind of gets to a point where it's just a lot of shootouts, you know, and which is, it gets kind of boring uh, where it's just like these giant machine guns and all these things. It's just like this long distance shootout. So I like that uh, this one, uh, the, the action's a little more up close and personal while still kind of, uh, having the guns uh, a little like a uh, John Wick influence in there mm -hmm. you know we've seen that permeate through uh, the action genre uh, recently and I kind of felt a little bit of that yeah for me this one it, it's it's really all about you know Noel I mean he is just he is so I I really thought after I first saw this that he was just going to explode as an action star um, and he was he's great on Insecure but I I really thought that he was kind of going to be, you know, in that Michael B. Jordan level mm. of, of action star because he cuts such an impressive action action hero in this. Um, you know, and that's the thing. If you look back at the movies that DeMonico has written before The Purge, he's really an action guy more than a horror guy. I mean, he wrote The Negotiator, mm -hmm. for crying out loud, you know. And so I think this, you know, Rachel said that this is the most chilling, but I also, like I said, I also think this is the one that fully steers into this series as an action series first before it becomes, you know, before it's a horror series. And that, that they double down on that in The Forever Purge. I mean, it's almost hard to even call The Forever Purge a horror movie. That's pretty much straight action through and through. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's the smoke bomb fight, but then also it's not even... The, the fight where Dimitri's going up the tower is great. I love particularly when he's sneaking through and slashing guys with the knife. Um, but it's also the setup when he uh, when he finally, you know, when he calls Naya 
and basically says, here's how it's going to happen. They're going to come in. They're going to kill everybody, but you're on the 14th floor and I'm coming for you. Like if that doesn't <laughs> like make you fucking fist pump, I don't like you're dead inside. Like you are, you are so dead inside. And it really is a, a testament to his performance in this movie that, you know, Dimitri ain't a good human being. <laughs> anti-hero. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I mean, straight in up, some ways, <laughs> straight up anti-hero, but they make this world such a shitty fucking world that it's like, yeah, the drug dealing, cold-blooded killer is literally the hero of this world because at least he still takes care of his own and uh and that that i think is is so fascinating it's such an interesting contrast compared to like ethan hawk in the first one who's so very self-serving and then grillo who's in anarchy is you know on a mission of vengeance and then an election year is just Frank Grillo, uh, you know, this is such an interesting contrast for for a hero in this movie. And yeah, it works. It works like gangbusters. Like, I'm just fucking just the, the last act of this movie is incredible to me. Mm-hmm. I really like the sequence once the group has infiltrated uh, Naya and Isaiah's apartment and they're using the mirror as they're entering. Um I also, I love Dolores and the fact that she goes ridiculous with the knife um, once she's able to get someone down. It is, that is rage that has been pent up for decades <laughs> and is unleashed. And so, purging. like, talk about, like, a purge. This is someone that... <laughs> Um, has found a new tier of existence. And it is, I think it's really cool because, you know, you do get a lot of shootouts in previous films, but using the mirror to kind of see where people are, to throw people off, to get different perspectives. I really like that. I think it adds just kind of a little unique element to it. I, for whatever reason, it tickled me. The Mo Larry and Jericurl having like their last state, like their standoff against the armed, you know, one of them goes down, the other one covers them. And, and you have like the Mo of the group saying like, you know, like we're going to take down as many of them as we can. Like they're going to have their last stand. Like I found that really, really fun to watch. Uh, You mentioned Dolores and Dolores does her whole thing with poop in her drawers. Like she says earlier how she shit herself. So she is doing all of that with like dirty underwear. So props to Dolores's character. Um, (laughs) Mike, you mentioned like how Dimitri is not, he's a great guy. And Rachel, you said an anti-hero and I'm just going to like a note that I kind of skipped over from the background McMurray talks about that developing this character of Dimitri. He wanted he in this quote is from an article in IndieWire where McMurray says he wanted to humanize the hood, show people it's not all bad, it's not all killing and purging. It was important in just showing a different brown and black uh, people in a community. And it talks about who the real scary people are for him because when you think about Dimitri, he is the king of this neighborhood, but he's small potatoes. When you look at like all of the other forces that are converging on this neighborhood and McMurray says, I think horror movies take the scenes that scare you in real life, turn them into a boogeyman, like a monster. They're a metaphor that we can confront and maybe conquer conquer. What I see is real and horrific. That's scarier than ghosts. 
The government's the boogeyman. The IRS is scary. Not aliens, not supernatural. The KKK in the streets at night, Charlottesville, that's scary. As a black man, person of color, these are the things where I'm just experienced, and I thought that was something I wanted to explore in the film. It was something I thought was important to show and not forget. So for him, it's like, look, Dimitri's not a perfect guy, um, but in the scheme of things, like there are so much, much, much larger things to worry about. So. And it's also like a reminder that, you know, there was violence, there was complicated, there was other issues, <laughs> you know, in these communities. I mean, everywhere, but speaking about the movie, like there were issues in this community before this. Like they were still mm -hmm. dealing with a lot of really shitty things even before yeah. the purge became a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really, I really like Dimitri as a character um, because I mean, he is uh, a very realistic character. Like, you know, there are of course, like, you know, like he is not a good guy he is a drug kingpin after all, but um, you know, there are in, in real, you know, communities, there are, you know, these kind of people that like, yeah, they are, are like bad, but they are, are like still ones that like, kind of take, you know, take care of their neighborhood to a degree. And mm -hmm. I, I sometimes don't like that um, when it's tried to be portrayed in movies. I don't think they uh, usually handle it all that well. Like, oh, yeah, it's the, the gangster with a code of honor and like all this kind of stuff. Um, I think that the the purge premise was like perfect to be able to have this character and be able to call it out like you know like Naya calls everything out like yeah like th this purge experiment this is one day like you're doing this 364 like and mm -hmm, like and mm -hmm. you kind of see the way that you know he lives in this like you know very lavish compound in the middle of you know disgusting this neighborhood like I mean you know it, like the neighborhood's not great um, but like when you go to his like you know area like he's you know he's living it up but like so it's like he is like still he's under this guise before like you know the the stuff that he is like you know yeah I still look out for people I take care of my own I take care of my family take care of you know all these things but then um whenever he's you know kind of forced to to take this arc and just be like look it's like uh you, you like put your money where your mouth is and like you know like really be able to kind of you know face you know the the damages he's done and uh, be able to do you know something to atone for that and like even at the end of this movie like they you know they kind of have the parade for it and it's a little too uh hallmarky at the end for me because at the end of the day it's like yeah he did still you know he did help but at the same time it's like it's not in you know like he's he still you know really has you know work to do with his community after this uh that we're gonna see but um but i still really enjoy his character well i was just gonna say that i think you also do get bits and pieces of where he is kind of contributing to the neighborhood and helping mm -hmm. with um, different things. I will say the thing that the I think the thing that really shocked me was that he has a comment about not knowing who his workers are. He's like, "Well, I don't know who who's working like these these corners." And you're responsible? Like, no. Like, you have to at least have a spreadsheet of, like, these are, <laughs> like, you have to be able to know. Like, if you want to be able to track your goods, you got to know who has them. So I don't, that to me, I was like, all right. This, mm. I believe that. No, I mean, I believe that he has probably put that task on. I think the unsung hero, Blaze, um... And she's tracking all of that. But I 
I don't know. That to me, I was like, come on. Come on, friend. Like, this is... No. (laughs) I do think that's why, like, Skeletor is such a good character, too, in some ways, because it shows the flip side. It's like, you, you can't just have, you know, this drug dealer dealing these drugs all the time and, like, kind of paint him with a you know in a good light but it's it's important to show the other side of like the people who are utilizing his services and what it's doing to them Mm -hmm. and how that's affecting the community and so you know i mean there's a lot of things you could unpack with skeletor but also like it's important i think to show that like he's enabling this and he's you know there's there's people addicted to the product that he's selling and what that does to them so it's hard to not like a character like Dimitri, though, when he can, de- when Noel can deliver lines like, I don't know how to die. And like, <laughs> it's so perfect. It's like, all right, you're okay. You're a-okay yeah. in in my book. Let's, let's talk about Skeletor a bit because you do have, I think, something like akin to a slasher villain for the first time in a Purge movie with this character. He's like the big close-up you see at the start of the movie his brain is obviously not firing in all cylinders. Like there's addiction and mental illness and he's someone psychopathy that is going on there. He shows very early on why Isaiah would be a terrible drug dealer because Skeletor is basically saying in a long winded way, take my money, please. I would like to buy your drugs. And Isaiah is saying, what? I don't quite get what you're saying. And then gets his face cut for it. Um, but Skeletor is, is he too cartoonish even for this series or am I, am I missing something here? Not for the, I, I feel like it adds a, like it's a good, it's a good palate cleanser almost or like mm-hmm. tying into the previous three, mm-hmm. three movies, you know, cause those, some of those do get so silly. So it's like a kind of a carryover, I feel like. So I, I didn't hate it. Yeah. I just feel like in the other movies there's no real central villain like the villain is the purge itself and like you know the villain in the first movie is a is like what ricky schroeder from silver spoons like he would that's what the kid he would grow up to be yeah um there's no central villain well central like real badass villain yeah i mean there's usually not a central villain but i feel like all the films do at least always kind of have like the you know, primary, like, secondary antagonists, okay. and they, they're always memorable and zany in some way, because, uh, you know, I called out, like, uh, the, the, the candy girls from the last one that I hated. Uh, but then you get, like, uh, the, but then you get, um, what, what was his name, Big Daddy in Anarchy, the the uh, the guy in the, in the butcher outfit with the sunglasses and, like, the crazy mm-hmm. machine gun, like, you know, he's, like, very, like, over the top in a different kind of way, but, like, each... Uh, I feel like it's just a nice, like, kind of uh, following the, you know, the purge formula to a degree. There's always going to be kind of that zany one. But they did kind of um, be able to take a the, the zany uh, antagonist. But then, like you said, also add another layer as far as, you know, like him being um, the the reason from uh, from Dimitri's actions and things like that. And then, like, also, like, them, uh, you know, taking, uh, you know, him illustrating these passionate feelings uh and like them being able to like twist that manipulate it as well knowing that he's mentally ill but again rather than actually try to help they're like oh no this is like perfect this is like exactly what we want to hear mm-hmm. um, so it's like they they 
do give him some extra layers. Yeah, and I would say that he's the perfect example of what they want to do with their manipulation. Take people that have been... I think also, like, we understand that he's probably been through the uh, jail and prison system in and out. Um, Because I think there's some reference to that at some point. Um, I think in the beginning he's wearing like an orange, like you see like an orange collar around him when he's being interviewed. So it looks like he is. Yeah. So I, so I think they're, again, it's all about exploiting people to get to what they feel is the end objective. And you see that with the questions that they're asking in the interviews with what like pain point can we prod so that people are entering into this with the right idea so that they are angry and they feel justified and in a re- kind of a retaliatory mode uh, related to that. So I find them really interesting. I also think it's kind of a an interesting callback to The Purge 2014 with him kind of quote unquote coming in and saving the day um, and mm-hmm. and shooting down the people but he's like no this isn't about you I just want to kill Naya mm-hmm. and Isaiah so I liked that you're also keeping it consistent with you know even though people may come in to do good it's really just like well it's because I want the blood on my hands you don't get to have it I'll be honest, I wanted more of the two older women that had the shopping cart full of explosives. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like because they were straight out of like a Joel Schumacher Batman movie and they were just having so much fun. Like I could have easily spent taken half of like Skeletor's screen time and spent half of it just watching the two of them. They were just having a blast. Speaking of having a blast, let's talk about Marissa Tomei in this movie because <laughs> I think I made it like I was like sitting there with my little notepad and I'm like, is that Marissa Tomei? And then I'm like, holy shit, that is Marissa Tomei. And it was like the weirdest bit of casting for her since she was George Costanza's girlfriend on Seinfeld as herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a little bit of a mean note here saying like whoever did her hair and wardrobe should be on her short purge list because it is not a look that screams very serious psychologist it is the look of a person that is like it's open mic night at the ha ha hut and i have like a five minute stand-up set to deliver (laughs) right i mean it's not great we've seen worse in horror come on Oh, yeah. We have. <laughs> it doesn't make it excusable. Doesn't mean it make it right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's doing it to Marissa Tomei. I, I, My I cousin Vinny. The, come on. Yeah. I, I feel the the crime there, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, her character is. Uh, I feel very underutilized um, as far as like someone that you would think would be like a very important, you know, figure for this thing. You know, the person created it, and I mean, I you know. Again, I see, you know, uh, what they were kind of wanting to do with that NFFA 
and you know they're kind of taking control and spinning it but at the same time i feel like they uh, i still would have um uh liked a little bit more presence and a little bit more conviction on you know what her true motivations are because it's like at first it's like you feel like she's you know kind of bullshitting the interview and she is in with nffa but then she like kind of keeps insisting that she's not and then like because i've always wanted um to kind of get into more of the the psychology and morality throughout the purge series but then as the films kind of go on and you know responding to the current landscape they do lean more into the the sociopolitics and stuff but i've always kind of uh, wanted to get a little bit more out of the the exploration of the the morality here um i mean she's just, it's it's interesting because it's like we've seen this how many times over like this is science and like mm-hmm. how it can be used and exploited politically like we've seen this time and time again and so like i did think it was interesting that she was presented this way because she was just a means to an end she happened to have a program that fit this agenda and so she was used basically and disposable and then they killed her so that she can potentially be yeah. blamed and villainized if it doesn't end up working the way they intended to be yeah. like oh well she was she was the bad guy <laughs> also like beg beggars belief that she wouldn't think that her program would be used for this like that she would be upset or not know that the nffa would like try to doctor the results and send in their own hired goons because the whole premise of her program is what if we let anyone do whatever they want for 12 hours including kill somebody like the, how do you not work out any possible scenario where that might get manipulated um I mean, well, didn't they do this for... with like, what is it? The Stanford experiments, yep. Mike? Yeah, the I mean, Stanton like prison experiment. Stanton. Okay. I was like, wait, Stanford, Stanton. Um, I mean, I mean, that's very similar, right? And like, that's messed up because that involved <laughs> very real it's, people. And <laughs> yeah, it's the idea that people will go along to get along. But the counter to that, like there's other experiments that have been done where if one person stands up and says like, no, I'm not going to take part in this, it frees other people at that point to say, oh, you know what? This is a bad idea. And you see like the the uh violent stop very quickly at that point like that's the countermanding to the stanford prison experiment i actually have a bit here on the psychology mm. behind the purge so if you can indulge me for like two minutes yes. um we're gonna do a little crossover with my other show so the idea is like would an event that allows individuals to surrender to their id just be enough to pacify them for this period of time like if we give you one day to do whatever you want to do will that give you 364 days of being passive and crime will be down and unemployment will be down and whatnot um the analogy i use with anger a lot when i work with my clients is anger is a lot like a balloon where you put air into it you put air into it you put air into it if you don't have a release for that air eventually the balloon will pop it can only hold so much it can get pretty big and get pretty massive and when that balloon pops depending on how much air is into it that's going to give you the volume of how how loud that explosion will be and anger is very much the same idea the more anger you put into yourself without releasing it in a semi-healthy way the 
worse that explosion of anger is going to be once you actually indulge in it. So the idea of the purge is rooted in this idea of catharsis, that there is emotional relief that comes from getting something like heavy off your chest, off your minds, or off your psyche. Like it's you're no longer weighed down by it. And there is research that suggests that sometimes striking back against people or a person that have harmed you can bring some relief and closure. That if you're able, and I've said this in bullying classes that I've taught to middle schoolers, where I'm like, look, here are some pacifist ways to deal with bullying uh, that don't involve like fighting or put your hands on one another. However, if I'm being realistic, the best way to defeat a bully is to punch them as hard as you can in their nose and teeth <laughs> with your good fist. Uh, just do it after school ends, 500 yards away from the school. And I say that to middle schoolers all the time, like not here in the building. Because um, there is something about it'll stop a bully, usually more than anything else. Um, but more often than not, what happens when you give into violence is it creates a need for more violence. Like, it's not like, oh, I did this. I finally beat up this one person who was giving me a hard time, and now I'm done and I'm completely over it. No, what usually happens is it creates a need to be more violent more often. Um, and what happens is our sense of guilt, the part in our brain that ta tackles morality and ethics, starts to dim a bit over time the more that we commit violent acts against other persons. It becomes easier to justify each time. As a matter of fact, there's research that says we feel more entitled to commit these acts against other persons and are therefore more likely to go out and commit them more often. Um, attacking someone can bring out a sense of relief if it's done in retaliation for a legitimate act of being injured, whether that's psychologically or physically, and that becomes justifiable. But if it's violence for the sake of violence, it's kind of like Pringles. You can't stop at just one. Um, what will also happen is like the things that a person is angry about originally tends to expand. So you might have like a very specific, I am angry at my ex-wife because she cheated on me. But then that becomes, I'm angry at my ex-wife for cheating on me and her friends for telling her it was okay and her new partner and the women that turned me down on dating apps and all women. And it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until there's no focus on it any longer. So it's no longer any one thing. You can't pinpoint that source of anger. And what will happen over time is it will just beget more violence. So that is my little psychological corner on the purge and what it would actually happen it would be harder to wait those 364 days in short yeah i mean i feel like that does i mean that that makes sense and i'm i'm surprised that like we didn't we haven't gotten a film where it's like a suggestion of like oh yeah we're gonna kind of do multiple but i feel like uh, i haven't seen the forever purge but i assume um that's kind of part of something that they're gonna get into of like not being able to get enough of it um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it becomes an idea. Why stop here? I think you're also introducing just the cycle of revenge that even if you feel good, you've now done something that's going to piss off someone's cousin 
and then they're coming for you next year. And I just, it does, I think, ask the question of, you know, is it catharsis versus creating just a new, just kind of funneling it on to a whole nother set of people? And I don't know, like, I would just, there's not an hour in a day that I don't piss someone off. And so I, I like get in line at my door at purge to see who can be first. And I just don't like, so then like the next year, my cat's going to go after you in purge because no <laughs> one is here to feed her. Oh. We would all become Steve Buscemi's character in Billy yes. Madison, where we would have a little list and we would be, <laughs> you know, which that's his greatest role, by but, the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with the psychology, there's always that undercurrent of revenge going after people who uh, you feel slighted uh, by because people aren't just going after, um, you know, oh, well, I just feel the need to kill. I guess Skeletor is supposed to be like a reference to that, but mm-hmm. if you peel back beyond the superficial level, it's not that. It's because of all of the issues that we already talked about with him. Um, I think that no one is just going after someone because I have an itch for blood. They're going after someone because you cut me off and now you die. So I think there's never any real conversation about the cycle of vengeance and revenge. Mm-hmm. I would imagine knowing, like say you're 150 days away from the purge and that person is gets on your quote unquote list that like the amount of, hostility that would build up over 150 days before you could let it out would be maddening. And you don't have to use other methods of sorting through or resolving conflict because all you have to do is sit on your hands (laughs) and buy a knife. And so, yeah, it's just, again, I think it's, so interesting to see the way that the NFFA has packaged this as something that it's so clearly not. And because of the way that they've done it, people are like, yes, absolutely. And you have a character like Updale who's like, yes, being mad is bad. And when you do a thing to make you temporarily less mad, that is a good thing. No, like, what is next? I do think there should be a prequel to the prequel where it's Updale getting a really bad haircut and that sets off this whole <laughs> experiment. Any other uh, any other thoughts before we move away from the psychology of what would actually happen with an event like this? All right, let's talk about what does happen in this movie and the disappointment that that play is, I, I felt this played as real, like where it's like, you know what, we're going to have a block party 
and we're going to stay mm-hmm. home. And 99% of the people are like, I don't want any part of this. What do we all think of that? Mike, what do you think? I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's realistically the way it would go until there was a break in the chain. Um, you know, my day job, I deal with the criminal justice system quite a bit. And for the most part, most people, I don't, I don't want to go as far as to say most people are good. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think most people can't be asked to bother. Like most people don't commit crimes because that takes work. And so, (laughs) you know, they're not going to, they're not going to, they'd rather have a party. Uh, but you know, once they drop in the soldiers, it, um, it, I think it, it sort of unleashes going back to a little bit of the psychology that you're talking about. It unleashes people to feel like it's okay. It, it creates a, a group thing. You know, even you look at something like January 6th. Now, January 6th individually probably doesn't happen. Like those individuals are probably not going to storm the Capitol because that takes work and they can get shot. Uh, but hundreds of them given permission, it becomes a very different thing. And I think that's what you see here. Um, you know, and you do still see most people are still even throughout the entire movie, like the people in, in Naya's tower block, you know, their whole goal, they're just trying to live through the night, man, because that's all most people are just trying to do, just trying to purge or not. Most people's end goal is going to be, I'd like to, you know, maybe wake up tomorrow morning. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you really see that. But then you do see the people who are given given permission here um, and, and the ones who take it as an opportunity, like like a, uh, you know, seeing it as an opportunity to uh, assert his power over Dimitri. And uh, well, that didn't work out for him. But uh, but uh, because, as we know, Dimitri can't be killed, um, <laughs> be killed, doesn't know how to die, doesn't know how to die. Yep. Um, you know, and so I, I think it is a pretty realistic depiction, it, it, you know, to a certain extent, I think within the confines of its kind of cartoonish action ways, I think it's a pretty realistic depiction of what a first experiment of this would look like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's real hard for most human beings to try and kill somebody when you're looking at them. You know, you see that in the military. I can't remember the stat and my military friends will correct me, but it's something like 10 or 20 percent of all soldiers fire like 90 percent of all the bullets because mm-hmm. There is just a certain group of people that will do the fighting. They will they will jump on the opportunity, and the rest are just trying not to get shot. Sure, no, that makes perfect sense. Make that that sounds accurate. Um, Rachel, you have a note here about the kind of crimes that are committed and what this series is typically shied away from. Because what we see is a lot of murder in this series, but. Obviously, there's a lot of physical crimes that don't necessarily result in death, but a lot of harm. Yeah, something that I appreciated, and that's a you know a strong word for it. But like I, there's a moment where Naya um, is grabbed in her groin area, and you know she what does she say? She calls him a pussy, pussy grabbing, grabbing motherfucker. motherfucker. And, you know, I appreciated this in a weird way because the series has not really addressed sexual violence or sexual assault in any way that I can, I can think of any anyways. And that is a huge plot hole in my mind. The fact of the matter is if all crimes were, you know, forgiven for a day, 
there would probably be a lot of sexual assault and violence because that's just the world that we live in. And so it's always felt weird that they haven't addressed that. Like, yes, we've seen people breaking into stores. We've seen people trying to steal things for financial gain. But there's so many other forms of violence and um, other crimes, disgusting crimes that we don't see represented. And I I get why they don't, because these are movies and movies are supposed to be entertaining and fun. And murder is like so foreign to so many people that it's kind of like not as, you know, I don't know. There's some space there between audiences for a lot of people, but you get a little closer and a lot of those crimes get a little bit more uncomfortable because, you know, they're so much more common and... Anyways, yeah, I just appreciated that they touched on that for a brief moment because I think they've been scared to go there. The TV show touches on it a little more. Okay. There is the, um, there's actually a group of women, they're called like the matron saints that go around and um, just kick the shit out of domestic abusers. And they do like, quote, like on the purge night, Uh, women die on a three to one ratio to men which when you watch these movies it feels like the opposite is true so the series touches on it a bit but you're right it doesn't really happen in the movies at all you do i mean i and there's not there's you know it's only you only have a certain amount of time like i understand it but it's still an important thing to bring up Mm -hmm. i think and you do get a little bit of it in anarchy uh, when Diego breaks into to Carmeny Jogo's apartment, it's pretty clear what he's breaking in there to do. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah! So you do get oh my gosh, you do you're, get you're it right. there. Yes. Yeah, I I think uh, what what you were kind of tapping into, Rachel, was like yeah, like as far as uh, the the series does kind of focus in on you know the the killing because I guess that is maybe the most uh, cinematic crimes that you could do. Like we were saying earlier, we can't have. Uh, as much of, you know, there would be so much more of, you know, identity theft going on and like, you know, all kinds of things like that. But it's like, of course, we don't we don't have time for that. And to yeah. <laughs> so it's like, on one hand, I kind of appreciate, but at the same time, I do feel the fatigue of it's just like, why is it only killing and murder that we like kind of uh, focus in on? There is a, a bevy of crimes to get into. I think that you yeah. have to lean into murder because you like, what do you do if you leave people alive like what's what is the following days look like if you go in and you sexually assault your neighbor what you're gonna see them at 7.05 a.m and what do you do and how do you live and it's so i think that murder is just like well no yeah because then there's there's nothing left I don't have to worry about it, but yeah. Oh my God. That's why the purge cannibals would be so fun. Thank you for putting that idea in my brain. That's, that would be so, that'd be a fun one. Oh God. Well, the, that's why the masks are fascinating is because it start, you're right. You have permission to do whatever you want. And the mask start is a way to kind of cover the identities of the uh, folks, the NFFA are setting in like the outsiders, but they quickly become like a psychological tool so that like you give yourself permission in order to go out there and commit all of these crimes. Because if you can cover yourself, people won't know it's you and it can almost feel like it's not you that is doing it. It's the person under the mask. So I I find that a 
fascinating little reveal too in this movie. Well, and and for me in terms of kind of addressing other types of crimes, like something like sexual assault, given how poorly that topic is handled in not, you know, in, in movies that are ostensibly better than the purge movies, um, given this series's action roots, I kind of, I, I kind of don't really want to see them try and tackle that. Like I kind of know, know your limits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you a know. stay in your lane situation. The, mm-hmm. This sense. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, but other things I do like that aren't necessarily crime related. Like I love that there's a huge block party and everyone is getting yeah. along that people are just like, let's go have sex in public. Like let's cross that off the bucket list. <laughs> um, but there's like this on the, the, why this movie feels like a community the, it's nothing that says like churches are off limits yet there's an unspoken rule anyone who's in the church is safe nobody approaches the church until like the white supremacists show up like it's probably one of the safer areas overall and no one talks about it it just is like we're not going to attack people that clearly don't want to participate because they still are members of our community even the unhoused persons they're mostly left alone unless they're choosing to participate. Like at one point, um, is it Joseph or it's Isaiah? Isaiah is like running Mm -hmm. through their area. And that's when they're like, oh, let's kind of join in on the fun. But by and large, it feels like they're left alone unless you're actively taking part in the event, which 99.9% of the people aren't, or it's Skeletor. It just feels like a very quiet night. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it. Um, the 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 sense of community that um you were you were kind of bringing into uh kind of goes into one of the notes I saw you made about this like kind of um you know that it helps uh stay on the right side of the line of this between mm-hmm. being um exploiting the black pain or this being uh an exploitation flick and uh part of that is like you know one you have the community two I like that um it's obvious that um uh, um director's name McGray um that he you know did his research and he is kind of you know still paying homage to these exploitation flicks like I, I feel like that is like kind of what uh the block party uh kind of scene is you know those uh in many uh films you know it's a you know usually it's a scene of like black joy whenever like the, mm-hmm. even though there's like a lot of bad things happening around it's like no this community will still come together and have it have a moment for themselves so it's like i like that the purge has it's a little twist on that uh kind of uh trope i love kind of you know uh spike lee has one of these scenes in pretty much every single one of his films and uh so it's like you you can see that he did his homework uh in kind of in where to kind of bring some of the exploitation Mm -hmm. elements but Mm -hmm. it also doesn't feel like they're exploiting the black pain because like they still show like this community uh, have their sense of agency and resolve in this like yes they are yes they technically are victims of you know this uh, experiment and what's happening but at the same time like they don't you know kind of lose uh, their agency and like they're you know um, you know kind of keeping their moral strong and like you said like kind of having all these uh, unspoken agreements amongst each other because that's just how their community works and uh, yeah. so I, I like that um, he, he kind of very much brought that through to where it didn't come through as uh, exploiting black pain to me. Well, and I think that the NFFA needs this experiment to go a certain way so they can start driving the narrative of who you should target on Purge. Because then when you get to the events in the Purge 2014, you have these entitled 
white people mm-hmm. showing up and saying, this is someone that we are entitled to kill because they are a drain on society. And this is the first go. And so the NFFA doesn't put out, like, they are saying the the quiet bit, I think, a bit louder, but maybe more in a hushed tone to where they're trying, they still need to, like, craft and push people to be like, all right, like, yeah, you actually need to go after these segments of the population. We probably didn't make it super clear, but let's start doing that. So I think that that's also part of it. But I do like that you actually get to see a neighborhood and a community come together. And I think it's also very realistic in addition to the block party, the groups assembling in churches and finding some solace and comfort there and, you know, relying on each other to keep each other safe and, and protect kids. Um, because that's another line that the purge hasn't, the purge films haven't crossed. We haven't seen like a kid mm. killed on screen. Um, well, Grillo's kid. Oh no, that wasn't in the purge. So um, you just killed a Grillo. But one of the horrific thoughts is when you see the group leaving the church is that you know there are kids in there, little kids, and it's disgusting, repulsive, and horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And like the point about exploiting pain when you have scenes in a movie like like white supremacists are straight up shooting up churches, cops in riot gear beating down citizens like the watching neighborhoods destroyed Aryan nation members rolling through the streets like all of these things are kind of just taken from the news you know like these things we see every day so walking that line between playing that for entertainment but providing like a balance where you have again noel just being like absolutely you look at him you're like you could be blade like you could absolutely have a role in the next blade movie like you could absolutely be the next Stallone or Schwarzenegger and have a ton of fun watching this movie like there's you just want to see like and Mike you had said this like why is he not in more things right now his shit should be blown up and he should be everywhere because he's so good and so magnetic in this movie it's it's actually crazy to me you know sort of on that black exploitation front that in the same year we got this and director X's Superfly both of which star Lex Scott Davis uh, and both of which feature star making performances from young black actors. And I think are two of the best modern black exploitation movies that have ever been made. And Superfly died on the vine. And while the first purge was a big success, it feels like it didn't open many doors for people involved in it. Both of these movies. I don't know if you guys have seen the Superfly remake, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. I haven't. Um, And uh, it, they just should have opened so many doors for the cast and and they didn't, uh, which I think is a, if there is a shame about this movie, I think that is the goddamn shame that these aren't, this this movie has two of the most exciting young black actors between Noel and Davis, and they're not. You know, they're working. They're both working. They're both starring and stuff, which is great. But they're not. They're not the 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 mega stars that I feel like they should be. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, it's horror. A, People don't like horror, right? So they don't. <laughs> they don't respect horror. He has such a great delivery, but then also he even has a beige leather jacket. He has a shaft jacket for for a good chunk of this movie. So I mean, it, it, the homages are there, and he and he really does like kind of uh, fulfill that you know that type of vibe and energy from those characters. I feel like the they should have gone on to bigger things and didn't is the story of Blumhouse in some mm-hmm. ways because like this is a studio that has launched dozens of like massive movies like they have a very clear blueprint low budget movies market them well massive rewards and you look at like the paranormal activity series you look at this series and I'm trying to think of like who it's really launched mm-hmm. and aside from you can't say it launched Ethan Hawke because he's always been around. It's just like it's reminded people, oh yeah, Ethan Hawke, I really dig him. That's and you a... see him in Sinister and was Black Phone a Blumhouse movie? Mm-hmm. That little boy, no, that girl, those they blew up, but it wasn't okay. with studios. Yeah. It was with, with other like kids their age, like on social media and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I feel you know once they get that okay. kind of attention, it's like. Once the fans right. come, then the studios are like, "Oh well, that kid must be hot. Let's put him in a movie." But I, I but that's care. yeah. I've yeah. No, I've noticed that Blumhouse they kind of when they market they market their concepts and they like market their directors, but they are not mm-hmm. really like pushing like these performances and these like you know really talented actors no. that they're getting because they're also you know saving money getting you know actors that are a little bit less known. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but the fact that they um, some of these that we haven't had uh you know that they haven't been the more proper launch pads that they could be for these performers is a shame no any final thoughts halloween poster i had that too yep <laughs> in 2016 no less two years before the movie comes out so not only do we live in an alternate timeline where david gordon green's halloween is a real thing it's a real thing two years earlier Mm-hmm. And out long you, enough that the poster is available for Isaiah yeah. to hang up in his room. <laughs> Do you think this timeline has Corey in Halloween Ends? Um, or <laughs> do you think Halloween Kills takes place maybe on Purge Night instead and and people are still yelling evil dies tonight? Like these are the... <laughs> interesting. I saw you had a note about uh, the dystopian elements and uh, and I, I've always kind of wanted them to lean into a little more because this is like a, mm-hmm. you know, a slight dystopian, uh, not super far ahead, but kind of. And we get glimpses of it in the other films, but they really don't focus on it. But then they kind of no. give us a little bit more in this one, which I find interesting with all the different drones, all the cameras and then. Um, you know the the contact lenses. I, I love the contact lenses. Like yes, oh, yeah, like, cool Good that call. the masks you know had have a purpose and you know and a thing. But then I also love that they do it because it's cool and that's what these contacts yeah. are. Like yeah, it's for the cameras and stuff. But like it also just looks cool. It looks so creepy. Like when he's walking like down the alley and like you just see the eyes and like the houses, like the people who are inside. Where oh, I was and like the different that colored is... ones. Yeah, in the well window. done. Yeah. Ooh. It works. Definitely works. All right. Um, Well, I think that is our talk on the first Purge. So we have one more episode in the film franchise, and then we're going to have an episode on the two-season television series. But before we get to those episodes, let's wrap up with some plugs. So, Mike, tell us about 
the action for everyone podcast and where we can find you. sure you can uh you can find me uh personally on twitter at hibachi justice and on letterboxd at hibachi justice you can find the show basically anywhere it can be found uh twitter's the best place to reach us at a4e podcast uh you can hear the show anywhere you can hear podcasts action for everyone is basically a a the brainchild of me uh filmmaker liam o'donnell and film critic vice victus uh to try and create a space uh for action movies that gets the same where action movies get the same attention paid to them that horror movies do amongst the podcasting community because there is so much research and literature and and great podcasts like this one that are dedicated to horror movies and there just ain't that many dedicated to action um and so we we kind of tried to do that we also tried to make it you know, say what you will about action. It's a pretty regressive genre. So we try to make sure that there's also a, as best we can with two of us being middle-aged cishet white guys, uh, try and make it a, a, an inclusive space for people who maybe aren't the traditional action fans to hang out and talk about it. Um, but uh, yeah, Rachel's raising her hand. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to nominate you. Have Rachel guest on your show. Would love to. Would love <laughs> to. Awesome. Um, and what we've been doing a lot lately is because Liam is a filmmaker, we have been able to get some actual people on who don't typically show up on pat- podcasts. So people like John Hyams. We had Kenji Tanagaki, who's Donnie Yen's core, uh, primary coordinator. Uh, we've had Scott Adkins. Uh, the show actually started, I used to do a show called Adkins Undisputed, where it was me and Scott going through his career. So uh, Scott's been on it. Daniel Bernhardt's been on it. Um, we've had we've had a lot of fun with it. So if you like action movies, you know everybody make sure to check it out. Excellent. I definitely will check that out. And Rachel, what do you have coming up? Sure. With Losers Club in Bloody Disgusting and Daily Grind. Oh my goodness, you're super yeah. busy. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> um, so first off, I'm just going to say, hey, Mike, if you ever want to talk Charles Bronson, I'm a huge Bronson fan. You're on the list. Don't worry. Have, you're on the have list. Seen, I'm working my way through his entire catalog, and I'm like 60% done going through everything. So just going to drop that in. Um but yes, yeah, so I co-host on the Losers Club podcast, a Stephen King podcast on the Bloody Disgusting Network, and um, they just dropped an episode on the brand new Children of the Corn movie. So oh if you're a big old cornhead, you can you know tune in and see what some of the losers thought about that. And uh, their most recent book episode was Cell. So getting into some fun territory over on Losers wow, Club. Wow, it is. <laughs> The pain train, it is, oh. I'm not on you're either of those, so I glad uh, lucked you're out. <laughs> taking one. And Nicole, I just saw you. Lo- and where can we um, find you on the socials, Rachel? Sure, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at VinylGirl, G-R-R-R-L, and on Instagram at the Vinyl Girl, And I always share my writing and interviews there, so you can find all that there. And Nicole, we just saw you light up with a mention of Children of the Corn. Yes, as a what... misplaced Iowan, I am she who walks behind the rose. <laughs> what is going on with Bodies so of Horror? So Bodies Core? of Horror is going to be coming back uh, this month, a little bit later, after uh, the amazing team of Joe and Sherry uh, finish up season four of You. Um, so, um, it's over at the anatomy of the scream. And of course, bodies of four is a podcast that looks at, 
horror films through the lens of disability, and I did an episode on The Purge 85 years ago, it feels like, but it's not. It was maybe two. I don't... It's a time. But you can listen to that. That's fun for you. Cool. And you famously avoid social yeah, media. Yeah, don't do it. Not not part of the, not part of that world. Um, you are the happiest of the most well-adjusted well, of the bunch for it. Well, firm no on that. But um, I think that being off of social media has probably been uh, decent. Um, but you know, there's always that. You know. Like, well, if I was on social media, I could actually talk about things. I could actually promote, like, people that are awesome and doing amazing things like y'all. So that's that, I think, is the pain point for me. But, um, yeah. The flip side of that is everybody tells you how you're wrong for promoting who you promote. And you should promote these other people yeah. instead. Well, that's when you hit snooze. So. Yes, very good. Uh, As far as I go, you can hear my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, which examines horror movies through the uh, lens of mental health. March is Sibling Rivalry Month, so we've posted so far a really fun episode uh, with my friend Taffeta on whatever happened to baby Jane. It is like just always a pleasure to talk to her. And for the remaining um, remainder of March, we'll have a another mental health episode where we cover the same topic, but looking at Brian De Palma's sisters where you will, it hasn't been recorded yet, but there will be a lot of me swooning over mid seventies, Margot Kidder, who I just find the most beautiful woman in the world at that during that time period. I met her once and she told me that was her favorite movie she ever did. I love her so much. (laughs) I can't blame her. And she had so many amazing ones to pick from, from that era between that Superman, Amityville horror, black Christmas, a force, just an absolute legend. Um, We will have comfort horror episodes. We're going to be doing, you are not my mother. And also Terrifier 2, which I'm really (laughs) looking forward to talking about. Because with Jen taking a little hiatus from the show, we would never get to do that movie. I was going to say, she's going to come back and be like, all right. We are. (laughs) Well, I figure we're getting it in when she's not there so she doesn't have to do it. I mean, I feel that is like the smart choice. Um, You can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter and Instagram. Follow me at Letterboxd at Mike Chump Change, where I get to write pithy reviews of movies I watch and basically just talk about how I'm an idiot for avoiding Hitchcock for the first 40-something years of my life. Um, as far as this show goes, follow us at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Uh, we post just kind of like what's going on with the show. Make sure you go to our site, podandthependulum.com. All of our back episodes are on there. It's a pretty well laid out site, easy to kind of navigate and go through all of our hundred and now 75, 76 episodes. Um, go ahead. If you haven't already leave us a five-star review 
and a few kind words. That goes a super long way to new people finding the show. It goes a long way to moving us up Apple charts. And look, we're an independent podcast. We are completely dependent on good faith word of mouth. Um, oh, we did not. Oh, God. I was going to Casper my I way in. I was like, you. boo, the ghost of Devon was also <laughs> <Let> here. <laughs> oh, no. He was also here. Through the magic of editing, I will get to you next. Hold on. Uh, let me just embarrass myself and power through this now. Um, but leave us a review. It does really help the show. We'll talk about the Patreon when we relaunch that uh, with, oh no, we already have relaunched it by then, but I'll just leave that out for now. Okay. Devon. Oh, I skipped over you here. <laughs> no, you're good. Bring uh, it home. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore daddy disco. I also co-host the Spectre Cinema Club podcast with my buddy Garrett McDowell. We pick a different theme every month and then we talk about the different subgenres within each different film. Uh, we just wrapped up our uh, Shyamalanathon, uh, doing a smattering of his filmography, and then uh, now we are getting into a movie set in New York in uh, honor of Scream Six, and uh, we got uh, some uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead coming up as well, diving into our first TV series in April. So you can uh, find us over there at Spectre Cinema. Excellent. Well, listeners, thank you so much. We'll be back in a week with The Forever Purge. Then we're going to follow that up with a first time we've ever really done a TV show on the, ser- on the, on the podcast. We're going to do the two seasons of The Purge in one episode. And then we're going to take a little detour, just a two-movie film franchise with The Collector and The Collection. I think it might be the first time we do kind of like what we would call like a torture porn series. So we're kind of preparing me to do saw later this year and then after that who knows what is coming up but thank you so much for listening everyone thanks for sitting in with me today i really appreciate it and we'll be back in a week take care